Jack, I have some major news for the City Off Campus podcast. What? Did we get another instructional break? No, even better. We are partnering with Estella's giving away two gift cards. What do our listeners need to do to win? It's easy. All they have to do to win is like this post, share with two friends in the comments, reshare on their story, and check and make sure they follow us. So you're telling me there's a chance that I could win the gift cards and get a buff pancake burrito? There's definitely a chance the giveaway goes until Friday, April 23rd, so you're on the clock. Hey now, and welcome to the City Off Campus podcast with your two favorite hosts, Sammy Sommerfeld and Jack McFarland. Today, we've got ESPN senior writer Seth Wickersham on the podcast today. So my first question for you, Seth, is how did you go from Anchorage, Alaska to being a senior writer at ESPN? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I have a great answer. It just kind of happened. Um, yeah, I was born in Colorado. And then we moved to Alaska where I, I graduated from high school from there. And, um, you know, I played sports in high school and I... Um, I worked on the on the student newspaper for three years, and um, by the end of high school, it was just very clear to me that I had a future in one of those two endeavors. <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, I didn't arrive at that immediately. I mean, it took some time. I, you know, but I wasn't exactly sure when I graduated from high school what I wanted to do. Um, but I ended up at the University of Missouri, um, and that was for the journalism program. And um, it was just a cool experience. I mean, I never would have ever thought about going to the University of Missouri, um, you know, out of Alaska. I never would have considered it if not for the, you know, the prestige of the program. And um, when I got there, I just kind of, you know, tried to get the most that I could out of college. And, um, you know, they had like a, like a library at the journalism school and I would like go through and read old, you know, archives of some of my favorite writers like Jim Murray for the LA Times. Um, I, would, I would read as much about him, you know, read as many of his columns as I could. And, um, and then, you know, I just covered sports, you know what I mean? I just wrote like every single day and I got, um, I, I did an internship back home in Anchorage after my first year. And then I did an internship at the Sporting News magazine after my second year. And then um, my third year, after my junior year, I got an internship at the Washington Post. And that was a pretty cool experience. Um, you know, they just, they put me on the road, like, right away. I, I was a, you know, a lot of the interns, I think, had had been general assignment type of reporters. For me, that they put me on, there was an opening when I got there to cover the the Washington Mystics WNBA team. And so they put me on that. And, you know, the next thing I know, I'm flying all around the country covering this basketball team. And then um, when I returned to school for my senior year, um, I just fell in with a really good group of friends who are all really ambitious and who have all done great things in their, in their careers now. Um, my friend, Justin Heckert, great writer, my friend Tony Rehagen, great writer, my friend Wright Thompson, obviously a very great writer. Um, and uh, there's a football team that doesn't even exist anymore called the St. Louis Rams. They're now in LA. And um, that year, my senior year, we would cover Rams and Chiefs games to try to get the experience of covering a pro game. And when, um, 
midway through my senior year, the St. Louis Rams ended up making it to the Super Bowl. And so Wright got um, the idea to apply for Super Bowl credentials. And so we got accepted. And so four of us, me, Wright, Justin Heckard, and Steve Wolentic, went to Atlanta to cover the Super Bowl in college. And I mean, you talk about like crashing a party. I mean, you know, it, it's like the who's who it's like the Vanity Fair Oscar party for sports writers, right? The Super Bowl. And I was looking at it like, hey, look, I've got to, I'm graduating in six months. I don't have any job prospects. I've got to try to find a job. And um, one day I was walking through the media center and I recognized a man walking towards me and he was the editor in chief of ESPN magazine. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to introduce myself. And I think I had just gotten done playing basketball and I was getting like free water and snacks because of course I had no money. So I think I was like going there to, to get food and, and water after the game. So I think I was like all sweaty and, and very unprofessional looking, but I, 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 I introduced myself, his name was John Papanek. And I said, you know, I, I want to write for you one day. And he's like, oh, great, you know? <laughs> and that was kind of it. But then later on in the spring, I applied for jobs and, um, ESPN ended up having an opening, you know, I think about a month before I graduated. And so um, I don't think that that meeting helped me get that job. Um, I don't think it hurt. The way that John tells it now is that he remembered me and, you know, he remembered my, my letter that I wrote to ESPN trying to get a job there. I'm not so sure about that, but, um, you know, they just happened to have an opening and, and I was able to get it. And so that's kind of how it worked. And I really liked you know, I, I didn't know where I was going to work, but I really wanted to work at a magazine. I really wanted to do longer stories. And I, um, I really liked the program that they had at ESPN. It wasn't like a defined program, but they really wanted younger people writing. And they really wanted to give younger people on the staff a lot of reps to, to go out. And, you know, I was traveling like the first week I got there, I think. Not far, but, you know, I, I went did something at a baseball game. And, you know, I just remember that they really were invested in kind of developing talent. And so that's kind of how it went. What, what inspired you to want to do those longer form style of writing? Like a lot of people just think, Oh, maybe I want to be a blogger and just, just write my ideas as they come. And, oh, maybe I just want to like work for a newspaper and just do column style. What inspired you to want to take that next step? And what helped you kind of get used to that longer form investigative style where it took months rather than weeks to make a story? Yeah. Well, so the, the investigative style didn't come for a while. Like, you know, in college, I, you know, I didn't have the luxury of that amount of time, but um I guess it was just what I was drawn to. I mean, this was what I like to read the most. I was never, and I still am not someone who has a ton of opinions. I mean, I think that those people are, are very unique where they become columnists or, or commentators on television. I've just never been one of those guys. Um, I, I did a lot of newspaper writing and I just saw limits with it. You know, I just wanted to not be at press conferences. I wanted to be out to dinner with whoever I was writing about. You know, I wanted... I, when I was there, um, when I was at Mizzou, um, Tim Layden from Sports Illustrated came to write a, a story about the quarterback and of Missouri. And I never, we never got national media at Missouri. They just, they weren't, 
you know, a, a program that really drew those, the, you know, those types of writers. And so I never saw someone like that in action. And I was really, um, you know, I was just staring at him, watching him, how he worked, you know, some of the media sessions. And, you know, then I, when I read his story, it turned out, you know, he, he took the quarterback out to dinner and they drove around in his car. And, you know, I, those were just the type of things I loved, you know, Michael Silver, the stories that he would write at Sports Illustrated, um, off the Super Bowl, and I was a Broncos fan, and so, um, you know, at the late stages of my career or my high or my college career, you know, the Broncos were winning Super Bowls, and so I would read his Super Bowl game stories, you know, where he's on the balcony at John Elway's hotel room smoking a cigar. So anyway, I just was drew to that. I was like, well, why wouldn't you try to get that? And um, you know, I felt like by the end of college, I felt like I had a lot of newspaper experience. I had written for the daily paper for, um, two plus years. I had, you know, interned at the Washington post. And so I was like, well, I'm going to try to, and again, you know, I saw that ESPN magazine, especially in sports illustrated to a lesser extent, were we're really letting people come in at a young age and write. And so I wanted to try to do that. You know, you talk about, um, you know, the opinionists and, you know, the debates and that types of stuff, that form of, you know, media, your stories have been featured as debate topics on some of those shows, like First Take and things of that nature, local and national radio shows. So when your stories are then the topics that are being debated on TV, like, what is that like for you? Like to know that your um, stories have kind of hit home with not just your peers, but with a national audience. I don't know. I've never, I, you know, I, I didn't watch it. So like, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, I'd say that like, there's been a couple stories that, that I did that were co-authored or authored on my own that really caught fire. And like one of them was in the fall of um, 2017, where my co-author Don Van Nat and I were writing about the NFL and how it was dealing with the, the, the attacks from President Trump on the anthem and players kneeling or protesting during the anthem. And um, I reported the, the detail from the key meeting, you know, owner's meeting where the owner of the Houston Texans at the time, Bob McNair said, well, you know, we can't have the inmates running the prison. And it caused a big fight in the meeting. And when that got out, that one was, you know, on a different level of anything I'd ever really reported. I mean, that it blew up beyond sports. And so I was just inundated. So I wasn't really like, able to pay attention to everything that was being debated or said about it. I just knew that it was out there. It was a very palpable um, feeling, you know. I remember I was, on, I was on the ESPN campus doing TV that day and, you know, I'd walk through the cafeteria and you'd see the shows that are, they're all muted, but you see them talking about, you know, your story or, you know, if I log on to social media, you know, the Twitter app is crashing. Um, I'm getting tons of emails and text messages and stuff. And so, you know, it's just kind of a strange feeling. It, it, you know, it just feels like that, you know, you worked on something that went out there and was, you know, and resonated. And I think that's a cool feeling. I mean, not every story has components like that, but, you know, when you're able to kind of break through and um, work on something that, that really, you know, is consumed on a mass level and thought about and discussed. That's pretty cool. When writing long form articles or stories or even authoring a book, 
what kind of gets your creative juices flowing and like what are the stories that you like to tell as a journalist and storyteller Hmm. um i mean the creativity i just think that like it's it's different for everybody and you know i think that like when you're younger you just don't have the perspective that it's all going to work out. <laughs> you know, when you're sitting down at your computer and you're younger, you're looking at a blank screen or even you're writing and you're not happy with what you're writing. It feels incomplete. You're, you're just dissatisfied with it. And, you know, it takes on like a crushing toll on you and it affects your mood. And, <laughs> you know, it, it's a difficult thing to live with. And I think that as you get older, you're kind of like, OK, maybe what I'm writing right now sucks Maybe, you know, I don't have it, but I know that if I keep writing and I keep grinding to it, I'm going to catch fire at some point. You just have a little bit more faith in the creative process. And so you kind of embrace the fact that it's going to be messy and painful and you're going to be doing a lot of rewriting. But at the end of the day, you know, when the story's out there, it'll hopefully have been the best version that you possibly could do. And also, you know, my wife jokes that I have like uh, creative amnesia about the process where like I'll be in a bad mood or sulking around or upset with myself or creatively frustrated or whatever. But then when the story comes out, I forgot that any of that ever happened. So, um, you know, I think that that's like the best I can do. You know, there, there's this funny story that I tell um, that, that when I first start to discuss, it sounds like I'm bragging or even humble bragging, but I'm not. But uh, I, was, I had a, a brief spot in a movie called Draft Day with Kevin Costner. And so they fly me out to Cleveland and you know, getting ready for this scene. Then we find out that the scene is actually, they're not even gonna shoot it because um, they decided to cut it. So I'm there and like, I don't have a scene anymore, but they're like, well, we'll, we'll figure out a way to work you into the movie so it doesn't waste your time. So like they put me in this scene where um, it was at the, the draft party for the Cleveland Browns. And we, we sat down to shoot the scene and I was like an extra type of role, but we sit down to shoot the scene at like two o'clock in the afternoon and it didn't wrap up until maybe midnight or 1 a.m. I mean, everybody's just exhausted. And they were shooting the scene from every different angle you can imagine, up above, from the side, from the other side, you know, facing you it was it was interesting and then when the movie comes out the scene's like five seconds <laughs> if that and it taught me a lot about the creative process where you just have to try things to see what works I mean at the end of the day they were just capturing footage so that they can go into the edit room and say well for the couple of seconds that we're going to show this moment what's the best way to do it and you know they figured out what they thought was the best way and it's similar when you're writing a story sometimes you have to you know, just try things to see what works best. How do you formulate your story ideas as an investigative journalist? Like, do you just go off of sometimes, you know, the news and what's going on in sports or what are the times where you kind of have to go off the beaten path? Like, how do you go about that? Yeah, so I think there's like two of them and, and, you know, you hit them. Like one of them I think is, is when something's in the zeitgeist and you're like, okay, I want to know more about that. Like two years ago, I think the... Alliance of American football, the AAF was that startup spring football league. And it lasted like two, you know, two months, if that, I can't remember, but it was very short. And you're like, okay, this is going to be interesting because, you know, here was this like startup football 
you know, league that got itself onto television. You know, they were on, they got a broadcasting deal. They were on television and then it folded so fast. And you're like, okay, there's more to that. So I want to learn more about that. Other times, you know, you, you talk to people who are executives with teams or coaches or general managers or executives in the NFL league office. And they say, you know, you, you keep kind of a running conversation of what's going on in these various places. And eventually you just might know enough that you're like, okay, this is a story, you know, um, you know, this is something that like, I, you know, based on the conversations that I've had over a period of months, I think that like, it'd be worth trying to get it, you know, learn more about. So I think that's kind of, those are the two ways for me. How do you establish those relationships with any of those uh, different type of sources that you've just like listed? How do you establish those relationships? And how do you, how do you like establish that sense of just allowing them to be comfortable to say whatever it is, whether it's a polarizing topic or just something that hasn't been mentioned publicly, like how does that process go? Especially when a lot of organizations nowadays like to keep things in-house, like how, how are those things able to be uh, expressed? I guess like best way yeah. to put it. And you know, there's no formula to it, but mm -hmm. you know, I think that like the, the most important thing is to be out. And I know that it's hard right now, but like, you know, I, when I first started at ESPN, I would just, I would go to the NFL combine. And at the time, you know, the combine wasn't even broadcast on TV. I don't think, you know, this is like, you know, back in the Tom Brady combine, you know, era. <laughs> um, and, you know, I would go there and like, everybody would go out to the bars at night. And so, you know, I would go out with my writer friends and maybe one of those guys knows a scout. And so when you, when, you know, he, he introduces you. And so you get to know a scout that way, or your friend brings you over. And, you know, I remember Michael Smith who used to work at ESPN. Now he has his own show with uh, Michael Holly, but he was one of my really good friends and he just seemed to know everybody. <laughs> and so I would like be his wingman and he'd go and he'd know five people sitting at the bar and this person was a scout and this person was a assistant coach and this person worked the salary cap and this person did that. And I would just meet them all because I was with him. And so, you know, and then you just see them again and again, and, you know, you become, you know, not Seth from ESPN, but you just become Seth. And, you know, over a period of time, you just develop relationships. I mean, that's, the best I can describe. So, and then other times, you know, you're working on a story and you're like, I have to talk to this person. And so you have to, you know, do what it takes to get yourself an audience in front of that person. And so, you know, sometimes it's very natural and other times you just have to like, Hey, look, I have a job to do. I have to get myself in front of this person. I have to talk to them. And, you know, by force of will, <laughs> I'm going to, you know, do everything I can to make that happen. And so I'd say that like, you know, those are how those relationships are formed and how they continue is, is always tough. I mean, sometimes they continue even when you write investigative stories on, on their team. Um, other times it makes it, you know, those stories make things harder. Um, it just depends. And, um, you know, it's a tough thing to navigate, but, you know, I think usually I do my best to navigate it and, and you know, the, the person on the other side or the people on the other side do their best too. Yeah. How do you balance that 
professional slash personal relationship? Like, how do you kind of keep the, you know, obviously, you know, if there's a personal relationship there, how do you keep that there? But if you're writing an investigative story, maybe on their team that might not put their team in the best light at a certain point, how do you kind of keep that kind of balanced as best you can? Well, I mean, I just think you do your best to be honest about what you're trying to accomplish. And oftentimes, you know, they're like, I love you, but I can't talk to you for this. And, you know, good luck. But, um, you know, this isn't, you know, I can't help you with this one. You know, you're kind of on your own. And so I'd say that, like, um, you know, that's, that's, you know, it's more or less that's how it goes. But I just, you, you know, um, I think it's important that, like, if you're working on something actively, that that not get lost you know, in the course of your conversation. What has been like one of the most rewarding pieces that you have written or produced like personally, where once you finished that project or that story, you were like, you know, that was an amazing experience. I would say there was a story that Don Van Natta and I did in the fall of 2017 on Roger Goodell and Jerry Jones. Um, it was after all of our anthem things. And Jerry Jones was essentially trying to, or threatening to sue to keep Roger Goodell from signing a contract extension. And for a year, I wouldn't say for a year, but for a, a time period, I had worked on a Roger Goodell story and I'd gathered all this material and it just didn't work. Like I just didn't really have a story. And sometimes, you know, that happens sometimes. You do all this work, especially in investigative type stories, you just do a lot of work and you're like, you know, what does it add up to? And maybe it's just not a story at the time. So I put a lot of reporting to the side. And then in the meantime, Don Van Natta had been working on a story about Ezekiel Elliott, the Dallas Cowboys running back who was suspended by the league. Um, and he sort of felt the same way. He's like, well, I got all this material on Ezekiel Elliott, but I don't really think there's a story there yet. So when we learned a lot about the Jerry Jones, Roger Goodell relationship over the course of the fall because of all this Anthem stuff that was going on and writing about those meetings. And then Jerry threatens to sue to keep Roger from signing a contract extension. And like some pieces of new reporting that we reported at that time, coupled with all the reporting on Roger Goodell and the league office that I had, coupled with all of the reporting on Ezekiel Elliott ended up just like fitting together like puzzle pieces perfectly. And um, that was a hard, you know, th those are hard people to write about. And, you know, the story had a lot of really colorful reporting, you know, very blunt statements by Jerry Jones about other people in the league. And, um, you know, that was one that was really rewarding because I was like, you know, those stories are just, they're hard to do to write about very powerful people in sports. And, you know, I felt like that we did a really good job of writing the truth about their dynamic and their relationship. Is there ever any concern on your part about any career repercussions or any possible external threats from writing a type of story like this, where you have not like specifically the one you've just referred to, but any highly publicized individual where it is very polarizing and it's something that a lot of people might not have anticipated or it's just completely, you know, mind-blowing I guess is there ever a concern on your end or is it just this is my job I am this is what I'm supposed to do um I mean I've gotten death threats you know I remember when um 
I did a story on the Cleveland Browns in January of 2019. And, you know, it was about the ownership of the Browns and how they kept cycling through regimes. And, um, you know, ESPN's in a lot of businesses. It's a big company and they're in the business of journalism and they're also in the business of, you know, broadcasting games and doing all these other things. And, um, you know, the, the Jimmy and D Haslam were angry about the story that I did. And they had a, at the time they had a sponsorship. One of their companies had a sponsorship with, uh, the SEC network and they pulled the sponsorship as a result of that story. And I didn't know that they had a sponsorship, you know, um, I doubt it would have affected anything if I had known it, but I had no idea. And, you know, so that was an example of like a repercussion and, um, you know, you kind of feel like you're like, uh, sorry about that. <laughs> but, you know, fortunately my bosses at ESPN, you know, they were, they fully had my back in that situation. And, um, you know, that was, that was really cool. Just wanted to take a second and tell you guys about our new partnership with Estella's Fresh Mex based in Iowa city. We are going to be giving away two gift cards on our social channels. All you have to do is go to our Instagram at the city off campus or Twitter at the city. IC. like the post tag two friends, reshare it and make sure you're following the accounts for giveaway news on April 23rd. That's April 23rd, the city off campus on Instagram and the city. IC on Twitter. Now back to the episode. Working at a company like ESPN where like, you know, news is, like you know there's so many readers every day just you know looking to consume sports information and sports news what are your deadlines like or what's the time frame when investing like doing an investigative piece like do they say to you like we need this by a certain date or is it kind of like whenever you have the story completed bring it to us and we'll post it yeah I mean I would say that like with the investigative stories they're driven by story not by arbitrary deadlines you know if um you know, you, you, when you have the story and when the editors believe you have the story and it's been read and vetted and fact-checked and all that stuff and everyone feels good, that's when you kind of go with that. And then there's other stories that are like profiles. Hey, you know, we want a Patrick Mahomes story. We need it by this date. You know, can you do that? Those are different. But with the investigative stories, they, they're just not driven by artificial deadline ever. I read your story or um about YA Tittle mm -hmm. and that's like one of my favorite stories that you've done I thought it was just such an amazing like flashback slash like you know you could almost like you felt like at times like you were kind of watching him like throughout the story like you could it was just so like vivid and it was also emotional so like with a story like that where you're trying to portray this hall of fame football player and, you know, the ups and the downs of his career and his life, but also in his kind of final years. What was that like when the family was kind of, you know, really being so open with their emotions and what their situation was? Like, how do you earn that trust and that comfortability in like a reporting yeah. like that? And that was really an interesting story. I mean, um, it began by an editor that we had at the time knew the, the Tittle family. He was from California. He knew them. And I was out in California working on another story and he was like, oh, you might want to just give them a call and, and meet up with them. You know, Tittle's getting older, you know, he has dementia, just see if there, you know, if there's anything there. So I was doing a story on Tony Gonzalez at the time, the Hall of Fame tight end who was in his last year, they were playing a Monday night football game against the 49ers. And so um, the day of the game, 
I, I had called Diane DeLott, who was Wyatt Tittle's daughter. I had called her, we had talked. And so I went over to her house and um, she had actually written a book about her relationship with her dad. And I read it ahead of time. So we started talking and um, I was just in her living room and we were chit-chatting and we probably were there for a couple hours. And she goes, oh, I'll go bring you over to meet dad. And so we drove the five minutes to his house and um, I met him and, you know, we just sat and, you know, he, he was clearly, you know, um, limited by dementia, but he also kind of had this kind of spirit with him that was pretty interesting. And so I wanted to write about him. I didn't really know what, and then Diane told me, well, you know, we do this annual party down at the lake and it's going to be really hard to do it this year, but you know, why don't you come? I was like, okay, great. So it was supposed to be, it got postponed like maybe three or four times over the course of the late winter into the spring. And then they finally did it, I think in late April, early May. And, um, you know, so that's kind of how that worked. And then once I was there, I was, um, you know, I was just kind of observing. And that was really the easy part about that story. Um, it was just all in front of me. And so I just, I took notes and it wasn't, you know, that was, it was a, one of my favorite stories that I've done, but it wasn't one of the hardest um, just because it was one of those perfect moments where as a journalist, all these great things are happening in front of you. And, you know, your job is to just get them down and try to make sense of them. And that was, that was really cool. Yeah, that's what it felt like. It felt like as a reader, just it was kind of all laid out there, just like you were really able to capture the moments, especially at the lake, just like, you know, with the 50 people there and they were worried about people showing up, just all that type of stuff. Yeah. It was just so like interesting to kind of go through because you almost felt like as a reader, you were there too. Yeah. Um, so it was just one of the coolest sports stories. But going off of what kind of you just said, what what are some of the challenging stories you've done? Like what have been things where it's just like, they've been stressful to get people to sit down and meet and talk, or you're just having trouble puzzling everything together to make the story fit. Like what have some of those stories been for you? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I did a story on the Seattle Seahawks in May of 2017 about Richard Sherman and Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll and about, you know, how they were all kind of, struggling to recover from that that horrible play at the goal line where Malcolm Butler intercepted Russell Wilson in the Super Bowl and um you know Richard Sherman had been dangled for a trade and you know that was really fascinating to me where I was like you know first of all I go back to the game I was there um my seat you, you know was was in that end zone and so I, I saw, I had a great view of the play. And, you know, when Russell Wilson's throwing the ball, you're like, this is a touchdown, game over. And then, you know, this number 21 comes flying up. And, you know, I saw the back of his jersey. And I didn't see that he intercepted the pass because I was behind him. And so um, it was only until you saw, like, the, the, the crowd go crazy and the Patriots bench go crazy, you realize that he intercepted the pass. And it's one of those things you kind of put away. You're like, okay. At the moment, I wrote about Tom Brady. I went to his like post-game Super Bowl party and wrote about what that was like. But like, you know, you're filing that one away. You're like, how are they going to recover from that? I mean, how is that going to? That's the type of moment that haunts you, to be one yard from winning back-to-back -back Super Bowls. And so, the next year was okay. You know, nothing really happened. I thought they, you know, they they made the playoffs, and it was the year after that, 2016, that. Um, 
the cracks started to show. Against the LA Rams, Russell Wilson throws close to the goal line. I think it was almost intercepted. Um, and Richard Sherman just starts screaming at Pete Carroll on the sideline. And after the game, he's still hot. And he says, you know, we've seen how that goes. And then right before the playoffs that year, they take another kind of shot at Pete Carroll. Then the playoffs happen. They don't make it to the Super Bowl. Another lost year. You know, this defense that had prided itself and thought that they could have been the best ever is feeling like, you know, their fate is being wasted. And, you know, they're kind of their destiny is undone. And then news breaks that, you know, Richard Sherman might be up for a trade. And so that to me, those things were all just connected. And I was like, okay, you know, this is all, this all goes back to that play. And as I reported it, you know, when, when the story came out, what got a lot of attention was that Richard Sherman, you know, didn't like Russell Wilson and maybe didn't like Pete Carroll. And, you know, was, was, you know, there was these locker room tensions that were between the defense and Russell Wilson and the way that Pete Carroll coached Russell Wilson. But really the story was about how a group of really highly achieving men try to recover from this catastrophic thing that maybe you can't recover from. And, you know, Pete Carroll kind of did it in a, in a classic new agey way where, you know, he just had to move on. And, and Russell Wilson did it in his way where he was kind of so resolute and positive that you almost wonder if like he was detached from what was going on. And then you have Richard Sherman, who was pissed and a lot of players were pissed and so, you know, that's what that story was about. And that was, that was a hard story to do, but it was also a fun one to kind of put together because, you know, I knew that it was going on and at first people were, were reticent to talk and then they ended up talking quite a bit, you know, Pete Carroll was in the story. And so that was a, that was a, a rewarding story to do that kind of was a repertorial challenge also. Is there any type of story that you have aspired to want to do, or do you just kind of let these stories come to you and then the, the experiences are what they are afterwards? Um, well, it's both. You know, I, I like doing fun stories, <laughs> which is, you know, it's it's hard to find those, you know, but I, I um, you know, when, when I was first hired at ESPN Magazine and, you know, my first couple years of writing stories there, a lot of them were kind of fun, you know, kind of quirky stories. And, you know, I like to find those. They're just harder to find nowadays. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that like it's good as a writer and as a journalist to just, you know, do different things and use different muscles and not just do the same type of story over and over and over again, because, um, you know, the best type, you know, you have to follow your passions no matter what. But just in my opinion, I just think that like you become a better writer by just writing about all kinds of different things, regardless of what they might be. Speaking of some of your fun stories, I saw that you got to interview Brian May from Queen. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like, what well, I see the guitars behind you. So yeah. I'm assuming you're a big music guy. So what was that experience like? And who are some of the other like non-sports types of figures you've had the opportunity to interview or sit down with? Yeah, Brian May. Well, that story is the only story that I've ever done based on a press release. So one day, you know, I get press releases all the time and most of the time I don't even read them. And I got a press release. I think that it was in 2010, if I remember right. Um, or maybe late 2009. I can't quite remember. But yeah, I get a press release saying um, that We Will Rock You is the most played stadium anthem ever. And I'm like, well, that's fascinating. 
like did they keep track of such things and i was like well that seems interesting like the entire like culture of stadium anthems and music and what they do and so i wrote about that culture but you know brian may had to be queen had to be the centerpiece of it so i remember i i wrote them saying like you know i'd like to interview brian may about this you know and you know what went into the song so many of these songs they play are misunderstood right i mean they're just you think that they're one thing but they're not like born in the usa and um so i i flew to london and um it was in january it was very cold and i uh i had a rental car and i drove to meet brian may on the you know driving through london on the wrong side of the road and you know, I drove to this theater and I met him at a theater and it was terrific to, to meet with him. He was, he was a sweet guy and he, um, he was very soft-spoken and he, you know, told me about the song and the story and, you know, was, I think he was kind of surprised that it was played so much at sporting events, um, you know, but that was cool. And, you know, I mean, non-sports people, I'm just trying to think, um, I'm blanking right now. I mean, I know that it's happened, but I'm blanking a little bit. What about some sports people? I know like you've interviewed like Peyton Manning, John Elway. I'm, I, actually, I want to ask about John Elway because as a Broncos fan, what was that like to sit down with John Elway and talk to a guy that, you know, was, you know, the Super Bowl champion of your favorite team growing up? Yeah, I mean, I played quarterback in high school because of him. And um, I'd say that it was, I had met him before. And so I had, um, you know, whatever rush you get from being around someone famous, like one of the things you realize is that it wears off quickly. And then very quickly, you know, they're just, a, you know, a person you're interviewing and, you know, you're trying to learn about or whatever. I think the high kind of rushes off quite a bit. It's um, so with Elway, um, you know, I'd wanted to write about him for a while. You know, it was just rare that someone in his, of his stature you know went back into the game and you know chose to you know re-enter this thing that could impact his legacy and and you know they he kind of put me off for a while and then when they won the super bowl i think he was like okay you know we can do it now and i guess when i sat down with him again you know again it's like you know who i was back in you know 1998 and who he was back in 1988 were, were kind of long gone and so i didn't feel like a particular rush from, from being with him. You know, I think I saw as like, okay, I'm still, you know, I'm trying to learn, you know, as much as I can about the things that I'm interested in with him. Um, so, you know, I'd say that was, it, so it wasn't like, I didn't feel like I was there with this guy that I grew up idolizing. I felt more like I was like, okay, I was there with someone I'm writing about. One story that, or your book that's coming out in October this year, the It's Better to Be Feared, the New England Patriots Dynasty and the Pursuit of Greatness. I I don't feel like there's any book that anyone in, in mine, Sam's generation, should read more than this one because our experience as football fans has been defined by the Tom Brady and Patriot Dynasty. And there's been so much that so many of us don't know and that has transpired over the past five or 10 years what could people in our age or demographic look to expect or learn from reading this book? Because for me, I, I don't think there's anything that won't be important in that because it's one of the greatest dynasties in sport history. And 
you never really heard anything from it. And like you've just said with the Seahawks, you alluded to it with the cracks showing with Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson and Richard Sherman. You saw those cracks as well in New England. What could, what, what do readers and what are we going to expect or learn from this? Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, I, I, um, I think that, again, it's, it's exactly what it says. I mean, it's like, you know, the pursuit of greatness. Like, what does it mean to be great? What do you what do you gain from it? How does it fill you? How does it strip things away from you? How does it rip things away from you? You know, what are the trade-offs for, you know, the cliche at what price glory, um, you know, and, and, you know, like their greatness has paralleled your lives, you know, it's paralleled my entire professional career. I mean, Tom Brady and I both graduated from high school the same year, not the same high school, but the same year, you know, I've met him, in 2001, you know, back when he didn't even know if he was going to finish the season as their starter. Um, and, you know, we were both kind of getting our career breaks at the same time. And, you know, I just feel like that I had a particular window into like how, um, you know, their greatness came together and, and sort of what the, some of the trade-offs of it and the costs of it were. And um, the book wasn't my idea. The publisher actually had the idea and they came to me about it. And, um, I was, you know, it's been a crazy process. I mean, I'm not done with it, but like, um, you know, I, I hope that it's received as well as, as what you said, because, you know, I, I, I do feel like that their, you know, their greatness has, has, has lasted so long that again, it's like all people kind of know is the Patriots being great and to try to show in an honest way you know, what it takes to be that great is something that I was really interested in doing. I think it's like one of those unsaid things that it's another cliche. A lot of people just say it's the Patriot way. And I, a lot of people don't even know what that means, but it's just kind of something that's always said and implied about why the Patriots have had this continued success and greatness and yeah. why, why this ultimate team sport has been so dominated by this single quarterback and coach connection. And putting all the pieces around them and what players had to sacrifice and where things are now. I think it really is important for our generation, at least to understand that because we may never see something as great as this in the NFL ever again. It, who knows? Like Tom Brady has won countless Super Bowls and he's been in, I think it was, saw a stat. Has Tom Brady been in like 12% of the Super Bowls or something like yeah. that's an, that's an absurd stat. We will never, we may never see another quarterback like that. So to just understand like what that greatness takes, I think we got a, a look into that with the last dance this past summer with yeah. Michael Jordan. It was unbelievable to see what it actually took and what you needed to sacrifice in order for Michael to believe in you and trust you and for the Bulls to ultimately find that success. So I really think th this book is going to be an absolute killer. I really do. I can't wait to read it. Thank you. I appreciate it. I mean, tell your friends. I'll be back on the podcast to discuss it. How about yeah, that? For sure. You know, we'd love to have you on when the book's out and dive into that too. And um, speaking of something recent that I wanted to ask you about is you reported, so obviously you can see the flag in the back. I'm a Bears fan. And you reported about George McCaskey being one of the few owners to vote against the NFL 17 game season. I was just wondering like why he was one of the people from, you know, what you heard or from what you knew, like, you know, I would think for the owners, they're all doing it obviously for financial reasons. So why was he against it? Yeah, I don't know. So he was the only one. 
And that to me made it interesting because he was the only one who voted against it. And he just said no, you know, on the Zoom call. He didn't ex have to explain why when they were voting. And so I'll be fascinated to see his answer. I mean, it wasn't something that the Bears wanted to discuss, you know, when I, when I called them about it. And, um, you know, I think he's expressed reservations before about, you know, changing the season and, you know, what impact it might have on both the league and the players. And I'm sure that that helped drive it. But I, I, I don't know the answer to that. And I really am curious to learn. Do you know anything about how the NFL negotiated for a shortened preseason? Because I just feel like growing up, we've always associated game one, game two, game three, game four of the preseason for totally different reasons. And I feel like eliminating half of those games eliminates a lot of snaps and maybe film that players and teams could use to evaluate where they want to go next. Yeah. So as part of the collective bargaining agreement, um, my partner, Don Van Nan and I did a big story on Demora Smith and, and how that collective bargaining agreement came together um, that came out in uh, February, I think, maybe March. But um, in, in the collective bargaining agreement, there's a deal that there's a maximum of 20 games. So if you add a regular season game, you subtract a preseason game. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when they added the, the 17th game, they went to three preseason games. If in the future they happen to add another one, that would have to be collectively bargained. But assuming they would do that, they would, again, knock back another preseason game. So... One of my final questions I have for you, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast, is obviously we're college students. We have a lot of college students who are listening and young listeners who are interested in working in sports media, sports business, that type of stuff. What is a piece of advice you'd have about, you know, working in the industry, creating, you know, getting your first opportunity, putting your foot in the door? Like what, you know? I mean, I think that like, you just want to distinguish yourself. I mean, all of the editors around the country who run newspapers and websites and, you know, they get a gazillion letters from college students saying, you know, to whom it may concern, it would be a honor to be able to work at X publication. Um, you know, you really just want to make sure that your work stands out, you're writing creative stories, you're, you know, trying to report things that are hard to report. You know, you're, you're showing some degree of ambition in college. And then when you write your, your one page cover letter or email, you know, you have 300 words to make it interesting. And I would really focus on, you know, making sure that those 300 words read differently than the 300 words that these other, you know, of the hundreds of other letters that these sports editors will get. You just, you have to find ways to distinguish yourself. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, the cover letter is important because if you can show that you can write, then, you know, you've got someone with hiring authority, you know, intrigued. And then hopefully your resume and your work that you did in college and whatever internships you have, you know, it, it, it helps it. So I know you, you said earlier, you aren't really the type to, give opinions and obviously this quarterback class going into this NFL draft is unprecedented like we got five quarterbacks we don't know where they're gonna go and I'm of the understanding at least in my opinion that like of those five we can't be certain that all five will be franchise hall of fame quarterbacks 
if you, in your opinion, had to choose two of them that you think have the greatest potential to reach that franchise level, who would you pick? You know, I don't know. I mean, probably, yeah, I mean, the, the weirdest thing about the draft is just the mystery of it all. And that's what makes it fun. But yeah, I mean, of these five quarterbacks, there's a decent chance that three of them won't be true franchise quarterbacks. And maybe only one of them will be a true, you know, franchise quarterback who's with his team for a decade. Um, I mean, I'd probably go with Lawrence just because of skill set and coaching. And then I'd probably go with whoever the 49ers pick. Cause I think Kyle Shanahan, you know, is a terrific coach. And I think that he's someone who can get the most out of quarterbacks. I mean, I just think that like quarterbacks can overcome a lot, but they can't overcome everything. And if you have substandard coaching and you're in an unstable franchise and um, you know, the surrounding cast isn't, isn't very good, you know, it can be really, it, you know, that can be your career right there. I mean, you have no chance. And, you know, the 49ers being a team that are a year removed from a Super Bowl and working with a coach like that, I'd, I'd say that, you know, whoever they pick, I would put him along with Lawrence. Well, just to reiterate what Sam said earlier, I can't thank you enough for coming on and taking the time to do this podcast. It was seriously really cool for Sam and I to talk with someone like you. I mean, I've been reading your work for as long as I've been following ESPN and being a, a journalistic, you know, prospective member. So I really thank you so, so much for coming on. And uh, for all of our listeners as well, keep your eyes peeled. We have an Estella's giveaway coming out soon. We have a gift card. So we will have our posts on our Instagram and Twitter for those coming out shortly. As always, not the same time, same place. We will see you guys later.